Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the last chapter. We'll start there and speak much about the story of Easter. I appreciate so much your singing this morning. Every once in a while, it's important to sing some songs with a little tap to it, in spite of how that challenges us as Baptists. I heard a few claps. I heard a couple amens. I saw a couple hands raised, and I hope that inside, the rest of you were thrilled at what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You know, when we talk about the story of Easter, there will be those critics out there who will tell us, well, you shouldn't use the word Easter. It's a pagan holiday. It is… Listen to me. It doesn't matter what we call it. This is the day, this is the season in which we celebrate the glorious salvation provided and the death and burial and ultimate resurrection of our Savior. Our world knows this story as Easter. We have to use that language to bring them into discussions, and as we draw them into discussions, we must fill in the blanks and help them to understand what this celebration is really all about. But at times, even God's people fail to understand the complexities of the story. Even God's people fail to understand how glorious a story this is. And even God's people become comfortable with the way life is and fail to understand and lose a sense of longing for the way life is supposed to be in Christ Jesus. So this morning, just for some time, I'd like to talk to you about the story of Easter. And we'll begin here in Matthew chapter 28, but quite frankly, we're going to take the story of Easter all the way back to the beginning. And you have to make sense of everything from the beginning if you're ever going to make sense of anything in this life and cling to a hope of a better day. I hope you still cling to that hope. I pray that you still understand what Christ has done for you, and I pray that as you're reminded or at least challenged this morning, that you will understand the story of Easter from God's perspective, a glorious story indeed. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, we read, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said, come, see the place where He lay, and then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead, and behold, He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see Him. I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, ran to tell His disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, and they came up and took hold of His feet and worshiped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee, and there they will see me. Father, bless us as we spend some time in Your Word this morning. I pray that everything that we say is true and right and honoring and glorifying. I pray that the time that we spend here this morning is profitable time. And I pray that in some manner and capacity, 
through the faithfulness of Your Holy Spirit, You will take Your Word and speak into our lives that Word in a way that is deeply meaningful and deeply personal and deeply life-changing regardless of our status of belief. As we celebrate this story of Easter, I pray that You'd give us a clear gospel to take to a lost and dying world, a gospel that is fearless, a gospel that tells Your story from the beginning to the end, and a gospel, a truth that sets men free. When all is said and done, give us an unwavering belief of what that gospel has done in our lives, and an amazing sense of hope that even in these increasingly dark days, everything is going to be okay, and it's all because of Jesus. Bless us as we spend some time reflecting upon Your Word. We'll thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at God's story and intervention into the history of mankind, the history of the world as we know it today, it is often described by theologians as possessing four particular segments or stages of, of historic existence, God's presence in this world. It begins with creation, of course, it entails the fall of man. It speaks of the redemption of Jesus Christ for all mankind, and of course, we are waiting for the consummation of that story when we stand before Him and we see Him, and we become like Him for we see Him as He is. As we reflect upon that story, you cannot, in any sense, embrace and understand the degree of the story or the story of Easter without going to the beginning of your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1. For in Genesis chapter 1, it begins, in the beginning, God. Make no mistake about life. It's not your story. It's God's story. It's what God has done for you. It is what God is doing with you. It is what God may do presence of faith, and it's about what God will do for those of faith, taking us home to be with Him for eternity. The first couple of chapters in the book of Genesis give us two different perspectives on that glorious creation, but it is encapsulated at the end of chapter 1 in Genesis and into chapter 2, verse 3, where God says, and God saw everything that He had made, behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished His work that He had been doing, so on the seventh day He rested from all of His work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from the work of creating that He had done. It was finished. It was complete. It was exactly what God wanted it to be. The world as we know it the creation of this universe, and in spite of its vastness and continued scientific discovery, God did that. He did it with a spoken word. He did it once for all. This is indeed my Father's world. And in that glorious creation, it was absolutely spectacular and perfect, something that we couldn't even imagine today. And yet in the presence of that garden, God placed man and woman with one simple prohibition, that they not eat of the tree of the fruit, good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. 
and there would be dire consequences if they should do that very thing. So we looked at all of His creation. He turned Adam and Eve loose and said, enjoy every single bit of it. It is for my glory. Ever since that creation account and ever since that time, God has placed eternity in the hearts of all mankind, and we desire that perfect existence. We desire that glorious Eden. We desire the fulfillment of all of God's promises. We desire to to live and to participate and to celebrate all of the good things in life. The story didn't stop at creation. In Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Shortly after this beautiful creation, Satan places himself in the heart of the garden stirs up trouble. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In essence, the very first temptation to Adam and Eve were the temptation that said, in spite of the gloriousness of this creation and everything good that you have from God, He is holding something back from you. You can't trust Him. In fact, He's fearful that you will replace Him and you will become like Him if you partake of this fruit. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise… She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately they recognized that they had been laid bare before God, where they were created in perfection, where they were created to have a relationship with the Creator God where Adam spent time with God in the cool of the garden in the morning walks and talks, now they saw God as something different, and they recognized that they too were different and laid bare before God. They felt a weight of conviction, for they knew that they did something that God told them not to do. So when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, The man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? Please understand, it's not that God didn't know. One of the first things that men must do in understanding the truth of the story of Easter is to acknowledge that God has spoken into this creation. He continues to speak through the creation, the glories of this creation, so that according to Paul in Romans, no one is without excuse. Everybody knows that there is a God, and He created all things. So He calls out so that Adam might acknowledge Him, 
And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was laid bare before you, and I was fearful. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? It's a rhetorical question. God knows the end from the beginning. He knew exactly what was happening. And He was trying to bring out from Adam a confession of that sin. So much, like all people today. And Adam's response, he said, not I but the woman that you gave me. The woman said, it wasn't me. It was the serpent. The deed was done. Man had fallen. Curse had come across and into all aspects of God's perfect creation. And death was inevitable. It's exactly what God promised them in the garden. As sin enters into this garden, the presence of God is removed from that place. As Adam and Eve were forbidden to go back into that place, they would now inhabit a world that was no longer perfect and beautiful in all of its creation. They would live in a world that had been tainted by sin. Even creation itself, Paul reminds us, is groaning today under the weight of sin. It affects absolutely everything, for it was an affront an offense, an amazing outrage towards a holy and righteous God. But our world today says, how bad could it be? Genesis chapter 4 begins to reveal just how bad it can be. The story of Cain and Abel, a brother who murders his own flesh and blood brother. That didn't take long from Genesis chapter 3, did it? In Genesis chapter 6, we're also reminded in verse 5 that the Lord saw the wickedness of man and that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All mankind and their hearts evil continually. God would bring a flood upon the earth. He would destroy every living creature on the earth other than those and the ark, including Adam, Eve, and their sons and daughters. But it didn't purge the problem of evil, nor did it purge sin. The truth of the matter is, there was judgment, but sin remained. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. One of the first steps towards a right relationship with God. One of the first and most important elements of, of coming to grips with the story of Easter is, number one, to believe that there is a God, and He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him, according to the writer of Hebrews. And once you acknowledge that God has created all things and we are beholden to Him, and by the way, even if you don't acknowledge that, Paul makes it crystal clear that you are without excuse. For who can look around at the glories of this world and not understand there's got to be something more? That is the God of the Bible, the God of all creation. And in order to approach that God and in accordance to the plan of God, in order to, to bring about the redemption that was so necessary now that sin had entered into this world, you must come to the reality that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I'll tell you this. 
That's the sticking point for our world today. That is the problem for our world today. It is always somebody else's fault. It is never our own fault. We got that and inherited that from Adam himself. And when a world is unwilling to see that they have fallen short of the glory of God, when a world and human beings in that world refuse to bow in the presence of a perfect, holy, and righteous God, there's a consequence to that. And Paul in Romans says the wage of sin is death. The equation is this. You are born in sin, and unless you confess that sin to a holy and righteous God, you will die. It's not just a physical death. He's speaking of an eternal death, a separation from this grand and glorious Creator who made everything beautiful in His own time. And the consequence of of unbelief and the consequence of evil and the consequence of sin and the consequence of falling short of the glory of God is indeed death. And yet the good news is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. You would think that the world would have a semblance or an understanding of this story of Easter that begins at creation and proceeds through this tremendous fall from glory that affected absolutely everything that God ever created and left a stain on creation and the inhabitants of that creation that became so, so grievous to God that a mere four chapters later, He would destroy people off the face of the earth. He would think in particular the nation of Israel and the Jewish people would know that story. You think in particular that the God's people who inhabit the church would know that story. But even there, it doesn't seem to appear that we grasp the intensity of the story of Easter, beginning at creation, culminated into the fall. New York Times this past Friday, on Good Friday, published an opinion piece by Shalom Auslander, Jewish descent. It was a piece that insisted that in the celebration of this Passover, even the Jews should stop paying attention to God. If you go on to opine, you can't trust God. He's not good. He's not glorious, and He's not holy, and He's not righteous. In fact, He writes, and I quote, in this time of war and violence, of oppression and suffering, I propose we pass over something else, God Himself. Blasphemous. Proclaim that God is hateful. God is full of brutality. He claims that if God was a man, we'd drag him before the Hague and we'd have him executed. How far we've fallen from that glorious creation, and how deep sin has stained the human soul and heart and mind and the creation as we know it. He writes, perhaps now as missiles rain down and the dead are discovered in mass graves, it is a good time to stop emulating this hateful God. He mocks and says, God threw Adam out of the garden for 
eating an apple. That's called heavy-handed, unacceptable. He also mentions the plight of Eve in that article. And incredulously asked, cursing all mankind for eternity because of Eve's choices? What kind of a God is this? Isn't it amazing how much change took place in a few brief chapters in the beginning? We go from beautiful and glorious and perfect and holy and righteous to blemished and ugly and disdainful and defiant. And we wonder why we live in this kind of world today. If you don't think man is inherently evil, you have not been paying attention. If you don't believe there's a problem in creation, you haven't been paying attention. If you don't understand your need, you haven't been paying attention. And it was the sin of one man that brought sin upon all mankind and a curse to this creation, unless all of us in the place of having to acknowledge that there's a God and come before that God, taking ownership for the way that we live life. Some might wonder, how can a Jewish man who was raised by rabbis and taught by the rabbis ever come to such a terrible conclusion about the God that he had heard about his whole life? Let me tell you how Paul describes this in Romans For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been so clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, and they are without excuse. God has planted in our hearts this this eternity. God has created us in His image, and mankind is haunted by this God consciousness where we know that there's a God. We may not be able to define Him. Some may not be able to find Him, but no one can deny that there is a God. Even the most hardened atheist comes to the conclusions, looking at science, the the, the miraculous eye in the, in the human body and many of these other discoveries, and they shudder because they have no explanation. And there will n- be no explanation when you do not have time for God. So God gave them over to their futile thinking and their foolish hearts We're darkened. We live in a dark, dark, dark world. Oftentimes, we define evil in our own terms. We rightly so should have a severe reaction to ethnic cleansing and genocide. The Western cultures have turned a blind eye to abortion. Isn't it amazing how selective we can be? So this Jewish man is crying out about the unfairness of God, but he knows the story. 
And he knows the promise of a Redeemer in Isaiah and from the prophets. And yet somehow, instead of taking ownership and responsibility, it is easier to pass blame. Welcome to our world. And while we continue to pass blame, we will never find God. While the things written, I shall loam in this article, are deeply disturbing and troubling to me. Most troubling is here's a man without hope. And he's a man without hope because he is a man without God. Because he decided from the beginning God wasn't good. But in Genesis chapter 3, the goodness of God is revealed to us in an amazing kind of way. Where in spite of the sin of Adam, instead of taking their physical life and existence immediately, he promised the provision of a Savior, someone who could step into this world and undo what was done through the sin of Adam. So we move from creation. We quickly run from the fall because it's grievous to us, and man is capable of all kind of sin, and we live and inherited a world of sin, and we don't like what we see. There must be something more. And that story is spoken of by the prophets in the Old Testament, pointing toward a Messiah a Christos, a Savior, a Deliverer that could only come from God, building that hope in Genesis chapter 3, expanding that hope through the prophets of the Old Testament, and then being clearly articulated by the Holy Spirit for the writer of the Gospel of John. John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is clearly easy in John chapter 1 to identify the identity of that Word. We read in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So even though the promise of, of destruction and judgment, and even though There's that warning from God to Adam that if he would eat of this fruit, he would surely die. As he eats of that fruit and experiences separation from God, God already had a plan to speak back into that creation and make all things new. And he would begin with the capstone of that creation, men and women created in his image. This chapter in John chapter 1 is so critically important to the Jewish nation and so critically important to us who are here today. This Word made all things. This is the second person of the Godhead who existed from the beginning and had a role in the creation of this perfect and good and righteous creation that was entrusted to Adam and Eve. And yet he left his high and lofty position as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the second person of the Godhead, and He became flesh. He took on flesh. He was born of a virgin. He was born in a manger, and He was born to rescue. Even the Jews that blaspheme, even the Gentiles that fail to acknowledge His goodness, 
Jesus Christ was born to dwell among us, to fulfill and accomplish the atoning work, dying for our sins on the cross of Calvary and raising again for the salvation of all mankind. When those who saw Him in His earthly ministry saw Him, they were beholding His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, but they didn't see His glory. And they didn't know His name, and they didn't like His message. And do you know why? Because the message was about, the, about sin. The message was about consequence. The message was about redemption, which implies that you're broken and need to be redeemed, and men don't like that message. They haven't from Genesis chapter 3. We understand that as He proclaimed that message, as He challenged the religious leaders, as He corrected their false teaching, as He called them out on their sin, they grew in their despising of Him. And eventually, He would be betrayed. He would stand before Pontius Pilate. The crowd was asked, whom shall I deliver to you? And the crowd chanted about this same Jesus, kill Him, kill Him, kill Him, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. What was the other alternative? To acknowledge their sin, to acknowledge their failure, to take responsibility for their own actions, and they could not stomach that. How does that work in a world today? On any newspaper page, there's few newspapers today, on any news site, on any blog, on any radio program, people are screaming that the world is broken. Things are bad. Evil is real. And when presented with the only possibility for redemption, they still cry, crucify Him, crucify Him. Do you know, during the judgments of the tribulation period before the return of Jesus Christ, even those who have taken the mark and stand in opposition to God do not deny that there is a God. They do not deny that they are accountable to that God, even in the midst of some of the most gruesome judgments on the face of the earth. They shake their fist at God because they cannot deal with their sin. They don't want to take responsibility. God took responsibility, and He just sent His Son into this world for mankind. You might be here today and say, well, I'm not that guy. I'm not that person. I'm not that bad after all. And I would say that you don't understand sin. Paul describes it this way, for if because of one man's trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one man's trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification or the declaration of righteousness and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. We have a glorious creation. We have a devastating fall. 
We have a God who is full of grace and full of mercy who reaches into that fallen culture, provides a Redeemer and a Savior, the Christos, the Son of the living God. Because we are descendants of Adam, all of us are dead in our trespasses and sin. Some make the objection, how can I be guilty of somebody else's sin? And I would simply remind you, look in the mirror today. You are not condemned solely because of Adam's sin. You're not all that, and probably far worse. It's not one who hasn't told a lie, not one who hasn't had an evil thought, not one who hasn't coveted. If you're guilty of one sin, you are guilty of all of those sins. We may have inherited that sinful flesh from Adam, but make us Let's be perfectly clear. We have all personally and actively sinned against a holy and righteous God. So God sent His Son to pay the penalty of that sin. God sent His Son into this world to take your sin and my sin and pay the penalty on the cross of Calvary. And while this unruly evil world was chanting, crucify, 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 God was saying, this is my redemption plan. He is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus yielded himself to the will of the Father. He died a gruesome death on the cross of Calvary. And he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. For the cynics that are here today, There's more evidence for the resurrection of Christ than there is evidence for most things in this world. The problem is not the evidence. The problem is the fallen, sinful heart of man and unwillingness to acknowledge that there is a Creator God who we are accountable to, and He has provided a Savior. It is our sin that prevents us from understanding the story. Let me give you a quick illustration as we start to wrap up this morning. In a Ligonier conference, I've used this illustration in the past, there's a question and answer, as they often do in those conferences, and one of the, uh, the questioners, or excuse me, one of the, one of the panel who was going to offer answers was none other than the late R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul was a master with words. He was a master with understanding the holiness of God. He spent most of his life trying to convince God's people of how glorious and holy is their God out of Isaiah chapter 6. One of the questions that came to R.C. at that point in time, I got to tell you something about the makeup of a Ligonier conference. This isn't a group of agnostics and atheists. These are people of Reformed theology who are well-schooled in the Scripture These are people who probably all of them, at least 99% of them, have been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're talking about this large gathering of 5,000 people, and, and most, if not every one of those people, have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. But one of them asked R.C. this question, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why? When man first sinned, was God's wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? If God is really the God who He said He is, 
Why was he so harsh with Adam and Eve? That's the very thing that was written in the New York Times on Good Friday. Funny how the questions never change. But here's the alarming thing. This question wasn't from an unbeliever. This question came from someone who claims to know the Savior. R.C. Sproul immediately says, time out. Only a way that he could do it. He says, let me get this straight. God's punishment with Adam was so severe and all the sarcasm that he could muster. He said, God told Adam that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you do, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did Adam die that day? He asked the questioner. Well, certainly spiritually, but not physically. God covered them with fig leaves. He made a promise to them that He was going to make a way. Harsey Sproul continues, are you to tell me this creature from the earth defiled the everlasting, loving, holy God, and you think the penalty is too severe? His voice was raising higher and higher, and he said, what's wrong with you people? He said, I'm serious. What's wrong with you people? He continues, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. And the question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe than the way it was? Why didn't that very second God destroy Adam? You know why? Because a loving, benevolent, gracious, merciful God. That's why. That's why. But these are Christians who can't even see the impact of sin in their own life. These are Christians today who are twisting the truth of Scripture to be something that it never was without conscience. Where has our conscience of sin gone? We point our finger at the world, my friends. There's a problem with the conscience of sin and the church of Jesus Christ today. And we think we're okay because of us, but we are only okay because of Him, because you were dead and your trespasses and sin, and God reached into your life and saved you. Isn't that glorious? Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says, indeed, wretched. But God and His glory has rescued me through His Son, Jesus Christ. Lamentations says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This opine writer, the new York Times failed to understand that God could step into this world in a heartbeat and say enough. He did it once. He'll do it again. So why is He waiting? Because He's a merciful God. He's a merciful God who is patiently waiting, who's gathering together those who will believe, those who will accept this promise, and those receive the redemption that is found in Christ alone. If this man got what he really wanted, 
we would be in the presence of our King and the rest of the world would cease to exist. This cruel God is a benevolent God and He's a God of love. And He's waiting in patience. And one year for God is as a thousand days and a thousand days is one year. And I'm fearful that even God's people have lost their patience. And I wonder sometimes it's because we lost our sense of the repulsiveness of sin in the eyes of a perfect, holy, and righteous God. I would suggest and echo the words of R.C. Sproul. Part of the problem in the church today is that we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. But when you answer those questions, you find a hope that is rooted in Christ alone. For He did die for you to pay the penalty of your sins. He was buried and He raised again the third day according to the Scripture. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this is only good for the here and now and not for the eternity, if we don't understand the full plan of God from creation and to fall to redemption and to consummation, if we don't grasp what God is doing, what He has done, what He desires to do, and our hope is just to get together on an Easter Sunday and sing some songs with a little tap to it so we feel better, eat, of course, then all this is a big ruse. What is the point? What is the point? The point is the story is true, every part of it. The glorious creation, the devastating fall, the benevolent provision of a Savior. And now is the day of salvation. But you will never find Him and you will never know Him. Tell you all the consequences of sin. Own it. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. By the way, some of you Christians struggling with trying to, to understand the holiness of God, part of the problem in your lack of understanding is not what God has provided in His Word, but what you've done to your heart and mind. And you bought into this notion that I'm not that bad after all. You were disgusting and repulsive, a vessel of rat fit for destruction, but He loved you anyhow. And He rescued you through Jesus Christ. Do you, do you understand that? That's a glorious, glorious gospel. It is the believer's hope. It sustains us in the darkest times, and it assures us that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you are His, you are in His hand, and no one will pluck you from His Father's hand. Nobody. Glorious gospel. It's where our hope comes from, but it's rooted in grace and mercy and it brings the peace of God in a relationship with Him and a quietness in our spirit in spite of the world. So I would say to this Jewish writer, 
very words of Jesus in John chapter 16, I say these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's looking in all the wrong places for all of the wrong things. But he should know. How does one know? They must hear God's grand story in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. They must know God's grand story that Adam and Eve sinned against the holy and righteous God. They must know God's grand story that He sent His only begotten Son into this world to rescue all, including us, that have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And upon hearing that truth, they must confess. Confess what? They must confess that they're horribly broken, and that's the tripping point. That's the tripping point for the world. That's the tripping point for Christians who are living in sin today. They don't understand the holiness of God, and they don't understand their sinful tendencies. We must confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and indeed He died on Calvary to pay for our sins, and He rose from the dead forevermore. We must believe that, not with our heads. Too many of you, perhaps here today, believe it in your heads. My concern is your heart. Do you know Him? Or do you just know about Him? Because the story is not over. We are living in an age of redemption, and that age of redemption will eventually culminate in the consummation of the universe, and then the final judgment, and there are no second choices, yet God in His grace and mercy is waiting. Be careful of what you ask for, but once you believe, you must repent. Stop living the way you used to live, and start living the way you need to live. When Jesus said He's coming again, and promises us in John, 1 John, I believe it's chapter 3, that we will see Him and become like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We will finally rid ourselves of this sinful body. Our eyes will be open. We won't know everything, but we will know more than we were capable of knowing here, and it's going to be glorious. And what we will do the rest of eternity, holy, holy, holy. Maybe for the first time in our lives we understand sin in all of its ugliness. Holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb that was slain. As we wait for the final chapter in the story, as we wait for the sound of a trumpet, when we wait for the completion of our salvation, we wait in hope knowing that it's not just an empty promise. Jesus is coming again. Do you believe that this morning? He's coming. Are you ready? Do you know Him? Do you understand this story? I love this text. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And God's people said, He is Lord today. We will see Him as Lord sitting on His appropriate throne, and every knee 
shall bow and every tongue shall confess, believer and unbeliever alike, before He ushers in the new eternity as we know it. So, what does this even mean? I'm not sure there's any greater testimony to the story of God in creation. I'm not sure there's any greater testimony than the story of God in the life of His disciples than the story of a changed life. Scriptures clearly teach us that for those who are in Christ, everything changes. John Stott once remarked that perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that. If you know Him, things change. They change in an instant. They change over the course of the lifetime. But for someone who comes out of the darkness of sin, out from under the wage of sin, out from under being a vessel fit for destruction to being a child of the king, something happens that changes them in their perspective, in their life, and their behavior. The gospel changes everything. So the story of Easter is all about change, isn't it? The creation, the fall, the redemption story, and eventually the consummation where God makes all things new. So for those who are gathered in this place, my simple question that I leave, so what about the change? Where are you this morning? For God's people, I fear we've been numbed to sin, and I pray that we are haunted for generations with R.C. Sproul's words, what's wrong with you people? Don't you understand what God has done? Because if we don't get it, they never will. They never will. But no one is without excuse. What about the change? I'm not a perfect man. People said some really nice things about me last week and made me very uncomfortable because I have a mirror at home too. But I've grown to appreciate who I am. And you listen for 20 years about who I know. And I believe the story is true every single word. And a better day is coming. And it's all because of Jesus. And that's why we sit here this morning to the glory of God alone. Father, bless us as we lift our hearts and voices, accept our worship and overwhelm us with your grace and mercy and give us peace in these days that are evil. For the glory of God alone, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.